Good morning. Um, as Caitlin said, my name's Morag. Um, I'm part of the family here at Kingdom Vineyard. Um, and if you're new, you might not have seen me around because I've just had my holidays when everybody else was coming back from theirs. I have to say I'm a little bit disappointed that this year I haven't yet been asked what I'm studying. <laughs> so maybe I finally don't look like a student anymore, not even a mature one. We are now in our sixth week of our sermon series in the book of Luke, and we are still in the epic chapter one. We are deliberately taking this slowly, reflecting on passages which would normally be skimmed over much more quickly in the run-up to Christmas. This means that we can take a closer look at the cast of supporting characters. We've already been introduced to the couple we're hearing about today, and their part in the story is coming to a climax. So let's try that again with my teeth in. So let's have a look at Luke, chapter 1, verses 57 to 66, and hear about the birth of Elizabeth and Zechariah's baby. Luke chapter 1 at verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. First of all, let's do a quick recap on Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were introduced uh, back in verse 5 where we find out that they were both from priestly families, that they were a godly couple observing all the Lord's commandments blamelessly, and they were getting on in years and were unhappily childless. Zechariah was on duty in the temple in Jerusalem and was selected to be the one to enter the inner sanctuary to burn incense. Whilst in there on his own, an angel appears to him and tells him that he and Elizabeth were going to have a baby and they were going to call him John. Zechariah expresses some skepticism and as a result becomes unable to speak. And if you want to talk on that passage, which was very good, you can find Carol's talk on the Kingdom Vineyard website. A couple of weeks ago, Chris also spoke about Elizabeth 
his talk also available on the website. He spoke about Mary visiting her cousin Elizabeth and Elizabeth being filled with the Holy Spirit and the baby in her womb responding to the presence of Mary and her unborn baby. Where we find ourselves today is when Mary has returned to Nazareth. Elizabeth is at full term and gives birth to her long, longed-for son. In verse 58, we see that her neighbors and friends are so pleased for her. In contrast, maybe, to when she was childless, and Elizabeth felt that she was in disgrace with the people. But maybe I should give her friends the benefit of the doubt, in that at least they do now recognize the hand of God with Elizabeth. According to tradition, the couple's friends and family were expecting the baby to be named after his father, especially so as this was likely to be their only child. But Elizabeth is adamant his name is John. Unfortunately, she doesn't seem to have that authority, and Zechariah needs to be consulted. We told that they have to make signs to Zechariah which would seem to mean that his hearing was also affected, not just his speech. However, Zechariah was affected. As soon as he confirms his wife's position and names his son John, he's able to speak again. And the first thing he does is praises God. The result is awe and wonder in everyone who hears about it. The excitement is building. God is on the move. In his introduction to Luke, Toby explained to us that Luke was writing an orderly, well-researched account of things for Theophilus, a specific person and or a generic person who loves God and who wants to know the origin story of their faith. And Luke is centering his story very much in the history and the culture of first century Jewish Palestine to give Theophilus the all-important context. In one of my commentaries, it's helpfully explained in this way. Luke is in the position of the United Nations ambassador of some small nation, which is the flashpoint of a major crisis. What he has to say to the assembled delegates concerns a subject of worldwide importance. But to understand it, they must first understand the local conditions which have given rise to the crisis. And that's true, isn't it? Scratch beyond the surface in somewhere like, um, for example, Northern Ireland. You cannot fully understand what's gone on there without understanding the history and what's led to the point where they are now. And that's what Luke is doing. Zechariah and Elizabeth are clearly characterized by Luke as active, God-fearing Jews from an established priestly heritage. And Luke also places them firmly within the prophetic promises that God has given his people. There was another childless couple, well on in years, that received a promise from God. A miraculous child which would carry the promise that through his descendants the whole world would be blessed. In Genesis 17 we read about Abram 
and Sarai. In verses 3 to 5, God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. And in verse 15 and 16, God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. And very much like Zechariah, Abraham is a touch skeptical. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And we know the rest of the story. Sarah does indeed have a son, Isaac, who becomes the father of Jacob, who becomes Israel, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, and so on through King David to where we find Elizabeth and Zechariah patiently waiting for the new King David, the Messiah, to be revealed. A child born in old age to a barren couple rings prophetic bells of hope that God has not forgotten his promises. It was mentioned in a few of those commentaries that uh, Zechariah being silent for nine months and then being able to speak after naming his son, his son is a symbol of the new release of prophetic voices to Israel. Many believed that God had been silent for a long time, maybe around four or five hundred years, as that was the time from the end of the Old Testament. And with the loosening of Zechariah's tongue and the birth of the prophetic John the Baptist, this heralded a new season. It may well be a symbol of the coming of new prophetic voices, but I'll remind you that before Zechariah could speak, both Elizabeth and Mary have been filled with the Spirit and prophesied. I agree with Chris, which I'm sure he's revealed to here, <laughs> that Luke is again placing us within the fulfillment of God's promises. This time, the promise of Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. If we take this as the time that prophecy returns to Israel, we need to note that it starts with these true, two ordinary, amazing women. Um, I recommend Chris's talk on Elizabeth and Mary and if you've missed any of this series, I do thoroughly recommend it. Go back to the website and, and listen to it. But I just wanted to make a little aside here. For those of you who uh, have heard Chris's talk, you know that he was um, actually reluctant to take on the passage regarding the encounter between Mary and Elizabeth. And he was persuaded by the preaching team to take it on, amongst whom I will admit I was fairly vocal. Yes, Chris does not know what it's like to be a woman and could be considered to lack the necessary empathy to talk in a meaningful way about Mary and Elizabeth. However, 
that is blatantly not true. Just listen to his talk. And I'm not sure as a 21st century rather than a 1st century woman that I could understand and empathize with Mary and Elizabeth any more than Chris. But also, it's something for you guys to see me and our other incredible women preachers and leaders up here, and for us to talk about how women are valued spiritually in the vineyard and in the Bible, as if in some way we have to justify us being up here. But it's another thing to hear and see women championed by our equally excellent male preachers and leaders. And we are championed, both publicly and privately. And I know that that is not the experience of women across the board. So I wanted to say a public thank you to Chris and to our team, both men and women, who champion each other and all of us to be the best that we can be in what God has called us. Slightly off track, but important to say, I feel. The other important promise of God that Luke highlights with the birth of John is that there will be someone who will prepare the way for the Messiah. The angel has already mentioned this back in verse 17. And he will go before the Lord in the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And he quotes there a prophecy from Malachi. People were expecting first Elijah and then the Messiah. There were set expectations of what both these things would look like, which I would suggest John the Baptist and Jesus didn't measure up to. But that doesn't, them, doesn't make them any the less the true fulfillment of the promises of God. Both John the Baptist and Jesus really messed with people's expectations. But more of that to follow in other talks, I'm sure. So Luke has hinted at, or outright stated, that God's promises are being fulfilled. The one to prepare the way for the Messiah has arrived. Prophecy is again being spoken. The Holy Spirit is poured out on men and women. And the miraculous child born to old parents brings hope again to the descendants of Abraham. The birth of John has definitely caused a stir, as we're told in verses 65 and 66. All the neighbors were filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. If you have heard me talk before or you've listened to me uh, on the website or whatever, you probably already know that I love to pull on these prophetic threads in the Bible. It reminds me that this wonderful book is not a loose connection of verses to be picked apart, but a collection of narratives about God's people to be taken together. It reminds me that God's promises stand the test of time and can be relied on through everything. So I have enjoyed rooting around, reminding myself of these amazing promises that were fulfilled with the coming of Jesus. 
but in asking God what he wanted to say today, I was struck by those last few verses. And not because the people were filled with awe, but that who were filled with awe were the neighbors and the people in the hill country of Judea. I think I'm echoing points from other talks, but maybe this is something that God wants to emphasize to all of us or maybe some of us. We're still in Backswatersville. The only mention of Jerusalem so far was when Zechariah was serving at the temple. All other action has taken place in obscurity, in the hill country, or as Jesse said, that hole-in-the-wall cave in Nazareth. The fulfillment of God's promises has not taken center stage in Jerusalem, where the prophecies could be heard by the highest number of people, and what they meant could be debated by the brightest scholars. We are amongst ordinary, obedient, God-loving, God-believing people living their everyday, ordinary lives. The people who are in awe are the ordinary people who saw with their own eyes that a couple who should not have been able to have a child have had a baby. Spoiler alert. It would seem to be a bit of a theme. God reveals himself first to those on the edges, the ordinary Joes, those living out their everyday ordinary lives, not to those in power or influence. I would say coming soon, the shepherds. So what, so what do I think God is saying to us today? I think it's a reminder that obscurity or ordinariness is not a bad thing. Living out an everyday ordinary life is exactly where God meets us. In the everyday ordinary is where God's promises are fulfilled and where we hear his prophetic voice. I personally can get really frustrated and quite down, to be honest, when life feels like a drudge. That life is just getting up, eating, sleeping, and fulfilling whatever my role is for that day. Employee, house cleaner, dog walker, insert duty of choice here. I feel like I should be doing something, fulfilling some sort of higher calling. So it's a timely reminder for me God does not need me in a temple or even a perfect place. He can find me in obscurity and drudgery, and he can transform the ordinary simply by his presence. Not every call of God will lead to Jerusalem. It might mean raising a child in full view of nosy neighbors in the hill country of Judea. I'll leave you to think about that, what it might mean for you. I keep using this phrase, everyday ordinary life, and I want to leave you today with where, that, where, that, where I've taken that from. It's a passage that I think we've already quoted in this series, I think by Toby, but this is in the message version, and it's Romans 12 at verse 1. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, 
You're sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. In a moment, we'll make space for you to come up for prayer if you would like. And as Caitlin said, people who are in our home groups and know how to listen to God and pray respectfully will come alongside you and pray with you. And you can come forward for any reason. But I do wonder if there's maybe a few people who are feeling a bit like me, that life is a bit of a drudge and you need to be reminded of God in your everyday ordinary. I also think there might be a few people who need reminding that the promises of God are solid and reliable and will be fulfilled. Or maybe God is speaking to you about a calling which maybe looks more like the hill country than in the temple. And you would like prayer to understand that. As the band will come back up and they'll start playing, why don't you all stand and I'll pray. After that, as soon as you're ready, please do come to the front for prayer. Lord God, I thank you for Zechariah and Elizabeth. I thank you that your promises fulfilled in their miraculous baby. I thank you that you met them where they were as they lived their ordinary everyday lives. Help us, Lord, to see you even in the ordinariness of our lives. Open our eyes and our ears to see what you're doing this week and to recognize your voice in the everyday. Speak to us, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.